Chapter 10 of In the Reign of Terror. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Cherrick. In the Reign of Terror by George Alfred Henty. Chapter 10. Free. Robespierre chatted continuously as the meal went on, and Harry asked himself in astonishment whether he was in a dream, and if this man before him, talking about his birds, his flowers, and his life before he came to Paris, could really be the dreaded Robespierre. After the meal was over, his host says, As yet I am ignorant of the name of my preserver. My name is Henry Sandwich, Henry replied. It is not a French name, Robespierre said in surprise. I am of English parentage, Harry said quietly, but I have been resident for some years in France. I was for some time in the service of the C. de Viant, Marquis de saint Cal, but since the break-up of his household I have been shifting for myself as best as I could, living chiefly on the monies I had earned in his service and on the lookout for any employment that may offer. England is our enemy, Robespierre said, raising his voice angrily the enemy of free institutions and liberty. I know nothing about English politics, Harry replied with a smile, nor indeed about any politics. But I am a little past eighteen, and so that I can earn my living I do not ask whether my employer is a patriot or an aristocrat. It is quite trouble enough to earn one's living without bothering one's head about politics. If you can put me in the way of doing so, I shall consider that I am well repaid for the little service I rendered you. Assuredly, I will do so, Robespierre said. I am a poor man, you know. I do not put my hand into the public purse, and I and my sister live as frugally as we did when we first came to Paris from Arras. My only gains have been the hatred of the aristocrats and the love for the people. But though I have not money, I have influence, and I will promise to use it in your behalf. Until I hear of something suitable, you can, if you will, work here with me and share what I possess. My correspondence is very heavy. I am overwhelmed with the letters from the provinces begging me to inquire into grievances and redress wrongs. Can you read and write well? For from Harry's words, he supposed that he held some menial post in the household of the Marquis de saint Cal. Yes, I can read and write fairly, Harry said. And are you acquainted with the English tongue? I know enough of it to read it, Harry said. I spoke it when I was a child. If you can read it, that will do, Robespierre said. There are English papers sent over, and I should like to hear for myself what this perfidious people say of us, and there are few here who can translate the language. Do you accept my proposal? Willingly, Harry said. Very well, then. Come here at nine o'clock in the morning. But mind you, you are only filling the post of my secretary until I can find something better for you to do. The post will be better one some day, Monsieur Raspierre. Ere long, you will be the greatest man in France and the post of secretary will be one of which may be well envied. Ah, I see you know how to flatter, Robespierre said with a smile, much gratified. Nevertheless, with Harry's words, you must remember that I crave no dignities, that I care only for the welfare of France. I know, monsieur, that you are called Robespierre the Incorruptible, Harry said, but nevertheless, you belong to France, and France will surely see that some day you have such a reward as you richly merit. There was no untruth in that, Harry said to himself as he made his way downstairs. These human tigers will meet their doom when France comes to her senses. 
He is a strange contrast, this man, but I suppose that even the tiger is a domestic animal in his own family. His food almost choked me, and I had not known that the mare's fate depends upon my calmness. I should assuredly have broken out and told this dapper little demagogue my opinion of him. But this is glorious. What news I shall have to give the girls in the morning. If I cannot ensure Marie's freedom now, I should be a bungler indeed. Had I had the planning of the events of this evening, they could not have turned out better for us. It was the first time that Harry had called at Louis Moulin's as early as eight o'clock in the morning, and Jenny leaped up as he entered. What is it, Harry? You bring us some news, don't you? I do indeed, Jenny. Capital news. Whom do you think I had supper with last night? Had supper with, Harry? Jenny replied. What do you mean? How can I guess whom you had supper with? I am sure you cannot guess, Jeanie, so I will not puzzle your brain. I had supper with Rospierre. With Rospierre? The two girls repeated in astonishment. You are not joking, Harry, Jenny went on. But no, you cannot be doing that. Tell us how you came to have supper with Rospierre. My dear Jenny, I regard it as a special province as an answer from God to your prayers for Marie. I had the good fortune to save his life. Ah, Harry, Jenny exclaimed. What happiness! Then Marie's life will be saved. I can think I can almost promise you that, Jenny, though I do not know yet exactly how it is to be done. But such a piece of good fortune would never have been sent to me had it not been intended that we should save Marie. Now, sit down quietly, both of you, and you too, Louise, and let me tell you about it, for I have to be with Rospierre again at nine o'clock. Oh, that is misfortune indeed, Jenny exclaimed when he had finished. Surely he cannot refuse any request you make now. If he does, I must get it out of him somehow, Harry said cheerfully. By fair means or foul, I will get the order for her release. But you think he can refuse, Harry? Jenny asked anxiously. I think he may refuse, Jenny. He is a proud of his integrity and incorruptibility, and I think it quite possible that he may refuse to grant Marie's release in return for a benefit done him personally. However, do not let that discourage you in the least. As I said, I will have the order by fair means or foul. At nine o'clock, Harry presented himself for readiness for work, and found that his post would be no sincere. The correspondence which he had to go through was enormous. Requests for favors, letters of congratulation on Raspierre's speeches and motions in the assembly, reports of scores of provincial committees, denunciations of aristocrats, Letters of blame because the work of rooting out suspects did not proceed faster. Entreaties from friends of prisoners. All of these had to be sorted, read, and answered. Rospierre was, Harry soon found, methodical in the extreme. He read every letter himself and not only gave directions how they were to be answered, but read through the answers when written, and was most careful before he affixed his signature to any paper whatever. When it was time for him to leave the assembly, he made a note in pencil on each letter how it should be answered, and directed Harry when he had finished them to leave on the table for him on his return. I foresee that you will be of great value to me, Monsieur Sandwich, he said, and it shall be able to recommend you for any office that may be vacant with a feeling of confidence that you will do justice to my recommendation. Or, if you would rather, as time goes on, Attach your fortunes to me. Be assured that I should rise to power. Your fortune will be made. When you have done these letters, your time will be your own for the rest of the day. 
You know our meal hours, and I can only say that we are punctual to a second. When Harry had finished, he strolled out. He saw that the task of getting an order of Marie's release would be more difficult than he had anticipated. He had hoped that by placing it with a batch of papers before Robespierre, he would get him to sign it amongst others without reading it. But he now saw that this would be next to impossible. One thing afforded him grounds for satisfaction. Among the papers was a list of prisoners to be brought up on the following day for trial. To this, Robespierre added two names, and then signed it and sent it back to the prison. There was another list, with the names of the prisoners to be executed on the following day. And this, Harry learned, was not sent into the prison authorities until late in the evening, so that even they were ignorant until the last moment which of the prisoners were to be called for by the tumbril next morning. Thus, he would know when Marie was going to go through the mockery of a trial, and would also know when her name was put on the fatal list for the guillotine. The first fact he might have been able to learn from his ally in the prison, but the second, and most important, he could not have obtained in any other way. The work had been frequently interrupted by callers, members of the Committee of Public Safety, leaders of the Jacobin, Cordelier Club, and others dropped in and asked Robespierre's advice, or discussed measures to be taken. And after a day or two, Harry found that it was very seldom, except when taking his meals, that Robespierre was alone while in the house. And as his sister was in and out of the room all day, the idea of a compelling him by force to sign the order as they had originally intended to do with Marat was clearly impracticable. Each day, after his work was over, and this was generally completed about one o'clock, Harry called to see how Victor was getting on. He was gaining strength, but his brain appeared to make far less progress than his bodily health. He did not recognize Harry in the least, and although he would answer questions that were asked of him, his mind appeared blank to the past, and he often lay for hours without speaking a word. After leaving him, Harry met Louise and the two girls at the spot agreed upon the day before. A fresh meeting place being arranged each day, he found it difficult to satisfy them. For indeed, each day he became more and more doubtful as to his ability to get the order of release from Robespierre. Towards the man himself, his feelings were of a mixed kind. He shuddered at the calmness with which, in his letters to the provincial committees, he advocated wholesale executions of prisoners. He wondered at the violence at which, in his shrill, high-pitched voice, he declaimed in favor of the most revolutionary measures. He admired the simplicity of his life, his attraction for his sister and his birds, the kindness of heart in all matters in which politics were not concerned. Among Robespierre's visitors during the next three weeks was Labat, who was, Harry found, an important personage, being the representative of the Committee of Public Safety of the Province of Burgundy, and one of the most extreme in the frequenters of the Jacobin Club. He did not recognize Harry, whom he had never noticed particularly, on the occasion of his visits to the chateau, and who, in the somewhat threadbare black suit, which he had assumed instead of the workman's blouse, wore steadily at the table apart, taking apparently no notice of what was going in the apartment. But Harry's time was not altogether thrown away. It was his duty, the first thing of the morning, to open and sort the letters and lay them in piles upon the table used by Robespierre himself, and he managed every day to slip quietly into his pockets several of the letters to, of denunciation against persons as aristocrats in disguise, or as being suspected of hostility to the commune. When Robespierre left him to go to the club or the assembly, 
Harry would write short notices of warning in a disguised hand to the prisoner's name, and would, when he went out, left these at their doors. Thus he had the satisfaction of saving a considerable number of persons from the clutches of the revolutionists. He would then, two or three days later, slip the letters of denunciation, very few of which were dated, among the rest of the correspondence, satisfied that when search was made of the person's name would already have shifted their quarters and assumed some other disguise. February had come, and Harry was still working and waiting, busy for several hours each day, writing and examining reports with Raspierre, striving of an evening to keep up the courage and spirits of the girls, calling in for a few minutes each day to see Victor, who, after passing through a long and terrible fever, now lay weak and apparently unconscious alike the past and present, his mind completely gone, but the doctor told Harry that in this respect he did not think the case was hopeless. His strength seems to have absolutely deserted him, he said, and his mind is a blank like that of a child. But I by no means despair of his gradually recovering, and if he could hear the voice of the lady you tell me he is engaged to, it might strike a chord now, lying dormant, and set the brain at work again. But as to Marie, Harry could do nothing. Do what he would, he could hit upon no plan whatever for getting her out of prison, and he could only wait until some change in the situation or the appearance of her name in the fatal list might afford some opportunity for action. It was evident to him that Labat was not pushing matters forward, but that he might prefer to wait and leave the horror of months in prison to work upon Marie's mind, and so break her down that she would be willing enough to purchase her life by a marriage with him. There had been some little lull in the work for blood, for in December all the eyes had been turned to the spectacle of the trial of the king. From the 10th of August he had remained a close prisoner in the temple, watched and insulted by his ruffian guards, and passing the time in the midst of his family with a serenity of mind, a calmness and tranquility, which went far to redeem the blunders he had made during the preceding three years. The following is the account written by the Princess Royal in her journal of the manner in which the family passed their days. My father rose at seven and said prayers till eight. Then dressing himself, he was with my brother till nine. When he came to breakfast with my mother, after breakfast, my father gave us lessons till eleven o'clock. And then my brother played till midday, when we went to walk together. Whatever the weather was, because at that hour they relieved guard and wished to see us to be sure of our presence. Our walk was continued till two o'clock, when we dined. Our dinner, after dinner, my father and mother played at backgammon, or rather pretended to play, in order to have an opportunity of talking together for a short time. At four o'clock, my mother went up the stairs with us, because the king then usually took a nap. At six o'clock, my brother went down, and my father gave us lessons till supper at nine. After supper, my mother soon went to bed. We then went upstairs and the king went to bed at eleven. My mother worked much at tapestry and made me study and frequently read alone. My aunt said prayers and read the service. She also read many religious books, usually aloud, but harmless as was the life of the royal family. Danton and the Jacobins were determined upon having their lives. The mockery of the trial commenced on the 10th of December. Marcherie, Tranchet, and Daisy defended him fearlessly and eloquently, but it was useless. The king was condemned beforehand. Raspierre and Marat led the assault. The Gurdonists themselves menaced and alarmed stood neutral. But on the 15th of January, the question was put to the assembly. Is Louis Capet 
formerly king of the French, guilty of conspiracy and attempt against the general safety of the state. With scarcely a single exception, the assembly returned an affirmative answer, and on the 17th the final vote was taken. 361 voted for death, 2 for imprisonment, 286 for detention, banishment, or conditional death. 46 for death, but after a delay. 26 for death, but with a wish that the assembly should revise the sentence. Sentence of death was pronounced. After a sitting which lasted for 37 hours there was another struggle between the advocates of delay and those of instant execution, but the latter won. And after parting with noble resignation from his wife and family, the king on the 21st was executed. His bearing incited the admiration even of the bitterest foes. France looked on amazed and appalled at the act, for Louis had undoubtedly striven his best to lessen abuses and to go with the people in the path of reform. It was his objection to shed blood, his readiness to give way, his affection for the people which had allowed the revolution to march on its bloody way without a check. It was the victims, the nobles, the priests, the delicate women, and cultured men who had reason to complain, for it was the king's hatred to resistance which left them at the mercy of their foes. Louis had been the best friend of the revolution that slew him. The trial and the execution of the king had at least the good effect of diverting the minds of Jenny and Virginie from their own anxieties. Jenny was passionate and Virginie tearful in their sorrow and indignation. Over and over again, Jenny implored Harry to try to save the king. There were still many royalists, and indeed the bulk of the people were shocked and alienated by the violence of the convention. And Jenny urged that Harry might, from his connection with Robespierre, obtain some pass or document which would enable the king to escape. But Harry refused to make any attempt whatsoever on his behalf. In the first place, Jenny, it would be absolutely impossible for the king, watched as he is, to escape. And no pass or permit that Robespierre could give would be of the smallest utility. You must remember that although all apparently unite against the king, there was a never-ending struggle going on in the convention between the various parties and the various leaders. Robespierre is but one of them, although perhaps the most prominent. But could I wring a pass from him, even if only to save the king, that pass would not be respected. In the next place, Jenny, I have nothing to do with these struggles with France. I am staying here to do what little I can to watch over Hugh and Virginie for the sake of your dear parents and because I love you both. And I have also, if possible, to rescue Marie from the hands of those murderers. The responsibility is heavy enough, and could I, by merely using Robespierre's name, rescue the king and queen and their children and pass them across the frontier, I would not do it if the act in the slightest degree interfered with my freedom of action towards you and Marie. But Virginia and I would die for the king, Jenny said passionately. Happily, Jenny, <clears throat> Harry replied coolly, your dying would be in no respect benefit him, and as your life is in my eyes of a thousand times more consequence than that of the king, and if your chances of safety to some extent depend upon mine, I do not mean to risk one of those chances for the sake of his majesty. Besides, to tell you the truth, I have a good deal of liking for my own life, and I have a marked objection to losing my head. You see, I have people at home who are fond of me, and who want to see me again with that head on my shoulders. I know, Harry, 
I know, Jenny said, with her eyes full of tears. Do not think that I am ungrateful because I talk so. I am always thinking of how wrong it is that you should be staying here risking your life for us instead of going home to those you love. And I think sometimes Virginia and I ought to give ourselves up, and then you could go home. And Jenny burst into tears. My dear Jenny, Harry said soothingly, do not worry about me. It would have been just as dangerous at the time your father was taken prisoner for me to have tried to escape from the country as it was to stay here. In fact, I should say that it was a good deal more dangerous. And at present, as Rospierre's secretary, I am in no danger at all. It is a little disagreeable, certainly, serving a man whom one regards in some respects as being a little short of a wild beast, but at the same time, in his own house, I am bound to say, he's a very decent kind of man and not bad at all. As to what I have done for you, so far as I see I have done nothing beyond bringing you here in the first place, and coming to have a pleasant chat with you every evening, nor with the best will in the world, I have been able to be of the slightest assistance to Marie. As we stay at home and my intentions are good, but so far those intentions have borne us no useful fruit whatever. Come, Jenny, dry your eyes, for it is not often that I have to see you cry. We have thrown in our lot together and we shall swim or sink in company. You keep up my spirits, and I keep up yours. Don't let there be any talk about gratitude. There will be time enough for that. If I ever get you safely to England, then, perhaps, I may send in my bill and ask for payment. Harry spoke lightly, and Jenny, with a great effort, recovered her composure, and after that, although the trial and danger of the king were nightly discussed and lamented, she never said a word as to the possibility of the catastrophe being averted. One day, towards the end of February, Harry felt a thrill run through him, as, on glancing over the list of persons to be tried on the following day, he saw the name of Marie, daughter of the Cive de Vion, Marquis de Saint-Cal. Although his knowledge of Rospierre's character gave him little ground for hope, he determined upon making a direct appeal. "'I see, citizen,' he said, for such was the mode of address universal at that time, that among the list of persons to be tried is the name of Marie de Saint-Cal. Say Marie-Cal, Rospierre said reprovingly. You know, de and saint are both forbidden prefixes. Yes. What would you say about her? I told you, citizen, upon the first night when I came here, that I had been in the service of the father of this female citizen. Although I know now that he was one of those who lived upon the blood of the people, I am bound to see, say, that he has always treated his dependents kindly. His daughter also showed me many marks of kindness, and this I would now fain return. Citizen, I did you some service on the night when we first met, and I ask you now, as a full quittance for that aid, that you will grant me the freedom of this young woman. Whatever were the crimes of her father, she cannot have shared in them. She is young, and I cannot do harm to any. Therefore, I implore you to give me her life. I am surprised at your request, Rospierre said calmly. This woman belongs to a race who has for centuries oppressed France, and it is better that they should perish altogether. If she can convince the tribunal she is innocent of all crime, undoubtedly she will be spared. But I cannot, only on account of the obligation I am under to you, interfere on her behalf. Such an act would be treason to the people, and I hope you know me well enough by this time to be aware that nothing whatever would induce me to allow my private inclinations to interfere with the course of justice. 
Ask of me all I have. It is little enough, but it is yours. But this thing I cannot grant you. For a moment Harry was on the point of bursting out indignantly, but he checked himself, and without a word went on with his writing. Although tears of disappointment for a time almost blinded him, but he felt it would be hopeless to urge the point further. And, that did he do so, he might forfeit the opportunity he now had of learning what was going on. Another month passed before the name appeared on the fatal list. In the meantime, Harry had corresponded regularly with Marie by means of the warder, and had even once seen her and exchanged a few words with her, having been sent by Rospierre with a letter to the governor of the prison. Marie was greatly changed. Her color had faded away. The former somewhat haughty air and courage had disappeared, and there was an expression of patent resignation on her face. Harry had only the opportunity to whisper to her, Hope always. All is not lost yet. He had spent hours each day in his lodging imitating the signature of Rospierre, that he had made up his mind that, should all other efforts fail, he would boldly present himself at the prison with an order for Marie's release. With Rospierre's signature forged at the bottom, he thought he could write it now plainly enough for it to pass. His fear was that the prison authorities would not act upon it, unless presented by a well-known official personage, without sending to Rospierre to have it verified. Still, but little change had taken place in the Victor de Guisson's condition. He remained in a state almost of lethargy, with an expression of dull hopelessness on his face. Sometimes he passed his hand wearily across his forehead, as if he were trying to recollect something he had lost. He was still too weak to stand, but Jacques and his wife would dress him and place him on a couch which Harry purchased for his use. The worthy couple ran no risk now, for the sharpest spy would fail to recognize in the bowed-down invalid with the vacant face the once brilliant Victor de Guisson. Harry had many talks with Jenny concerning him. "'What should we do, Harry?' the girl said over and over. "'If we could get Marie away and all get safe together to England, which I begin to despair now of our ever doing, but if we should do it, what should we say to Marie? She thinks Victor is safe there. Only the other day, as you know, she sent us out a letter to him. What would she say when she learned on her arrival in England that Victor has all this time been lying broken down and suffering in Paris? To this question, Harry for a long time could give no answer. At last he said, I have been thinking it over, Jenny, and I feel that we have no right to take Marie away without her knowing the truth about Victor. His misfortunes have come upon him because he would stop in Paris to watch over her. I feel now that she has the right, if she chooses, of stopping in Paris to look after him. Oh, Harry, you would never think of our going away and leaving her. I don't know, Jenny. If it would not be best, she could say in disguise of a peasant girl with Jacques and his wife, they would give out that she was Victor's sister who had come to nurse him. I have great hopes that her voice and presence would do what we have to do. Namely, awaken him for the sad state of his lethargy. They could stay there for months until these evil days are over. Jacques' workmen friends are accustomed now to Victor being with him, and there is no chance of any suspicion arising that he is not what he seems to be, a workman whom Jacques picked up, injured, and insensible on that terrible night, it would seem natural that his sister or his fiancée, Marie, could pass for whichever she chose, should come and help take care of him. 
that if I can stop in Paris with Victor, of course, we can stop with Louise. I'm afraid not, Harry said. Every day the search for suspects becomes stricter. Every day people are being seized and called upon to produce the papers proving their identity. And I fear, Jenny, there is no hope of a permanent safety for you save in flight. It was just a month from the mock trial, at which Marie had been found guilty and sentenced to death, that Harry received a double shock. Among the letters of denunciation was for the following. Citizen, I know that you watch over the state. I would have you know that for more than seven months, two girls have been dwelling with one Louis Moulin of 15 Rue Michel. There were three of them, but the eldest had disappeared. This, in itself, is mysterious. The old woman herself was a servant in the family of the C. de Vion Marquis de Saint-Cal. She gives out that the girls are relatives of hers, but it is believed in the neighborhood that they are aristocrats in disguise. They receive many visits from a young man of whom no one knows anything. Harry felt the color leave his cheeks, and his hand shook as he hastily abstracted the note, and he could scarcely master the meaning of the next few letters he opened. This was a sudden blow for which he was unprepared. He could not even think what was best to be done. However, saying to himself that he had, at any rate, a few days before him, he resolutely put the matter aside, to be thought over when he was alone, and proceeded with his work. After a time, he came to the list of those marked out for execution on the following day, and saw with a fresh pang in the name of Marie de saint Cal. So the crisis had arrived. That night, or never Marie must be rescued, and his plan of forging Rospierre's signature must be put into effect that day. He opened the next few papers mechanically, but studied himself upon Rospierre, asking him a question. For a time he worked on, but his brain was swimming, and he was on the point of saying that he felt strangely unwell and must be asked to excuse for the work for the day. When he heard a ring at the bell, and a moment later Labat entered the room. "'I've just come from the tribunal, citizen,' he said, "'and I have seen the list for tomorrow.' I have come to you, as I know you are just, and abhor the shedding of innocent blood. There is a number of, among them, a young girl, who is wholly innocent. I know her well, for she comes from my province, and her father's chateau was within a few miles of Dijon. Although her father was a furious aristocrat, her heart was always with the people. She was good to the poor, and was beloved by all the tenants of the estate. It is not just that she should die for the sins of her parents. Moreover, Henceforth, if pardoned, she will no longer be an aristocrat. I respond for her, for she has promised to marry me, the delegate of Burgundy to the commune. The young woman is the daughter of the man called Marquis de Saint-Cal, who met his deserved fate on the 2nd of September. You are willing to respond for her citizen, Robespierre said. I am. The fact that she will be my wife is surely a guarantee. It is, Robespierre said. What you tell me convinces me that I can, without damage to the cause of the people, grant your request. I am the more glad to see to do so, since my secretary has also prayed for her life. But though he rendered me the greatest service, I owe to him a debt of gratitude I was obliged to refuse, for to grant his request would have been to allow private feeling to interfere with the justice of the people. But now it is different. You tell me that, except by birth, she is no aristocrat that she has long been a friend of the people, and that she is going to be your wife. On these grounds I can with good conscience grant her release. Labat had looked with astonishment at Harry as Robespierre spoke. Thank you, citizen, he said to Robespierre. 
It is an act of justice which I relied upon from your well-known character. I promise to you that your clemency will not be misplaced, and that she will become a worthy citizen. May I ask, he said, how is it that your secretary, whose face seems familiar to me, is interested in this young woman also? It is simple enough, Rospier replied. He was in the service of her father. Oh, I remember now, Labat said. He is English. I wonder, citizen, that you should give your confidence to one of that treacherous nation. He saved my life, Rospierre replied coldly. A somewhat good ground, you will admit, for placing confidence in him. Assuredly, Labat said hastily, seeing that Rospierre was offended. And now, citizen, there is another matter of importance I wish to confer with you. Harry rose. Citizen, I will ask you to excuse me from further work today. My head aches badly, and I can scarce see what I am writing. I thought you were making some confusion of my papers, Rospierre said kindly. By all means, put aside your work. On leaving the room, Harry ran up to the attic above, which he had occupied since he had entered Rospierre's service, rapidly put on the blue blouse and pantaloons which he had formerly worn, poured his, pulled his cap well down over his eyes, and hurried down the stairs. He stationed himself some distance along the street and waited for Labat to come out. Rapidly thinking the matter over, he concluded that the man would not present himself with the order of release until after dark. In order that Marie struggled or tried to make her escape, it would be unnoticed in the street. Labat had calculated, of course, that on the presentation of the order the prison officials would at once lead Marie to the gates, whether she wished it or not, and would, at his order, force her into a vehicle when she would be completely in his power, and he could confine her in his own house or elsewhere until she consented to be his wife. A quarter of an hour later, Labat came out to the house and walked down the street. Harry spoke to one of the drivers. When he had gone on again, Harry went up to the man. Comrade, he said, do you wish to do good action or earn a couple of gold pieces at the same time? That will suit me admirably, the coachman replied. Let one of your comrades look after your horse then, and let us have a glass of wine together in that cabaret. As soon as they were seated at a small table, with a measure of wine before them, Harry said, That deputy, with the red sash, who spoke to you just now, has engaged you for a job this evening. He has, the coachman said. I am to be left to corner at the Palace de Carousel at eight this evening. He is a bad lot, Harry said. He is going to carry off a poor girl to whom he has been promising marriage, but of course we know better than that. She is a friend of mine, and so were her parents, and I want to save her. Now what I want to do is to take your place on the box this evening. I will drive him to the place where he is to meet her, and when he gets her to the door of his lodging, I shall jump off and give my citizen such a thrashing as to put a stop to his galvanating for some time. I will give you ten crowns for the use of your coach for an hour. Agreed, the coachman said. Between ourselves, some of these fellows who pretend to be friends of the people are just as great scoundrels, aye, and worse than the aristocrats were. We drivers know a good many things that people in general don't. But you must mind, citizen, he carries a sword, you know, and the beating may turn out the other way. Oh, I can get a comrade or two to help, Harry said, laughing. There are others besides myself who would not see our pretty Isabel wronged. And where shall I get my coach again? At the end of Rue St. Augustine. I expect I should be there by nine o'clock with it, but I am sure not to be many minutes later. Here is a Louis now. I will give you the other when I change places with you. Be at the Palace de Carousel at a half past seven. I shall be on the lookout for you. I won't fail, the coachman said. You may re rely upon that. 
Harry now hurried away to his friends Jacques and rapidly gave an account of what had taken place. In the first place, Jacques, I want your wife to see her friend and to go to her to take a note instantly to the warder for him to give the Mademoiselle de saint Cal. It is to tell her to make no resistance when Lavat presents the order for her release, but to go with him quietly, because if she appeals to the warders and declares that she would rather die than go with him, it is just as possible that they might refuse to let him take her away, saying that the order was for her release, but not for her delivery to him. I don't suppose they would do so, because as one of the members of the Committee of Public Safety, he is all-powerful. Still, it would be as well to avoid any risk whatsoever of our scheme failing. I will drive to the Rue Montegard, which, as you know, is close to La Force. It is a quiet street, and it is not likely there will be anybody about a half-past eight. Will you be there and give me a hand to secure the fellow? Certainly I will, Jacques said heartily. What do you promise to do with him? I propose to tie his hands and feet and gag him, and then drive the Rue Bleret, which is close by, and where there are some unfinished houses. We can toss him in there, and he will be safe till morning. It will be the safest plan to run him through at once, and be done with him, Jacques said. He will be a dangerous enemy, and if left alive, as he would kill you without mercy if he had a chance, I don't see why you need be over nice with him. The man is a scoundrel, and one of a band of men who I regard as murderers, Harry said. But I could not kill him in cold blood. You are wrong, Jacques said earnestly, and you are risking everything by letting him live. Such a fellow should be killed like a rat when you get him in a trap. It may be so, Harry agreed, but I could not bring myself to do it. Jacques was silent, but not convinced. It seemed to him an act of the extremest folly to leave so dangerous an enemy alive. He would hunt us down, he said to himself. Else and I, the poor lad and the girl, to say nothing of the Englishman and the girl's sisters. Well, we shall see. I am risking my head in this business, and I mean to have my say. Having made all his arrangements, Harry returned to the attic and laid down there until evening. Having before, he went and purchased a sword. At seven o'clock, he placed his pistols in his bosom, girded his sword, which would attract no attention, for half the rabble of Paris carried weapons, and then set out to the Palace de Carousel. At half-past seven, his friend the coachman drew up. "'Ah, here you are,' he said. "'You better take this big cape of mine. You will find it precious cold in the box. Besides, he would notice at once if you were not the coachman he hired, if you are dressed in that blouse.' Harry took off his sword and placed it on the seat, wrapped himself in the great cape, wound a muffler round the lower part of his face, and waited. A few minutes after the clock had struck eight, Lebot came along. "'Here we are, citizen,' Harry said in a rough voice. "'I am glad you have come, for it is no joke waiting about on such nights as this. Where am I to drive you to?' "'The prison of La Force,' Lebot said, taking a seat in the coach. Harry's heart beat fast as he drove towards the prison. He felt sure that success would attend his plans, but the moment was an exciting one. It did not seem that anything could interpose to prevent success, and yet something might happen which he had not foreseen or guarded against. He drove at a little more than a foot pace for the streets at a short distance from the center of the town were only lighted here and there by a dim oil lamp, and further away they were in absolute darkness save for the lights which gleamed through the casements. At last he reached the entrance to the prison. Lebot jumped out and rang at the bell. "'What is it, citizen?' the guard said, looking through a grill in the gate. "'I am Citizen Lebot of the Committee of Public Safety, and I have an order here, signed by Citizen Rospierre for the release of the female prisoner 
known as Marie Cow. All right, citizen, the man said, opening the gate. It is late for a discharge, but I don't suppose the prisoner will grumble at that. Ten minutes later, the gate opened again, and Labat came out with a cloaked female figure. She hesitated on the top step, and then refusing to touch the hand Labat held out to assist her, stepped down and entered the coach. Rue Fossier, number 18, Labat said as he followed her. Harry drove on, and he was soon at the Rue Montanagard. It was a dark, narrow street. No one seemed stirring, and Harry peered anxiously through the darkness for the figure of Jacques. Presently, he heard a low whistle, and a figure appeared from a doorway. Harry at once checked his horse. What is it? Labat asked, putting his head out of the window. Harry got off the box and, going to the window, said in a drunken voice, I want my fare. There is a cabaret just ahead, and I want a glass before I go further. My feet are pretty well frozen. Drive on, you drunken rascal, Labat said furiously, or it will be worse for you. So you speak to me in that way, citizen, Harry said hoarsely. One man as good as another in these days, and if you talk like that to me, I will break your head in spite of red sash. With the exclamation of rage, Labat sprang from the coach, and at his foot touched the ground, Harry threw his arms round him, but it did so he trod upon some filth which so thickly littered through the thoroughfare, and slipped. Labat wrenched himself free and drew his sword, and before Harry could have regained his feet, he would have cut him down, when he fell himself in a heap of tremendous blow, which Jacques struck him with his sword. Jump inside, Jacques said to Harry. We may have someone out to see what this noise is all about. He will be of no more trouble. He seized the prostrate body, threw it in the box, and taking his seat, drove on. Marie, Harry said as he jumped in, thank God you are safe. Oh, Harry, is it you? Can it be true? And the spirit which had so long sustained the girl gave way, and leaning her head upon his shoulder, she burst into tears. Harry soothed and pacified her till the vehicle again came to a stop. What is it, Jacques? Harry asked, putting his head out the window. Just what we agreed upon, the man said. Here are the empty houses. You stop where you are, and I will get rid of this trash. Harry, however, got out. Is he dead? He asked in a low voice. Well, considering his head's cut pretty nigh in two, I should think he was, Jacques said. It could not be helped, you know, for if I hadn't struck sharp, it would have been all over with you. Again, it's better, as it is a hundred times, if you don't value your neck. I do mine. Now get in again. I shan't be two minutes. He slipped off the red sash and coat and waistcoat of the dead man, emptied his trouser pockets and turned them inside out, then lifting the body in his shoulder, he carried it to one of the empty houses and threw it in. They will never know who he is, he said to himself. In this neighborhood, the first corner will take his shirt and trousers. They will suppose he has been killed and robbed. No uncommon matter in these days. And his body will be thrown into the public pit. And no one will be any the wiser. I will burn the coat and waistcoat as soon as I get back. End of chapter 10 Recording by Ryan Cherrick